The Founding Fathers, American Revolution, our Constitution, our History, America. Thanks so much for tuning in as we discuss the people, places, events, and battles that turned 13 separate colonies into the greatest nation on earth, the United States. Welcome back, patriots. I am your host, Ron Kern, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to share my passion with you. The last episode was a bonus episode, and for me, it was one of my favorites for sure. It covered the crossing of the Delaware, and then the battles of Trenton and Princeton, and all the who, what, when, and where were all discussed in great detail. And if you haven't listened to it yet, check it out. I think you will really, really like it and have a larger appreciation for all of those things. I don't want you to learn about the people, places, battles, and events regarding the American Revolution. I want you to experience them. My fifth great-grandfather, Peter Kern, lived in Pennsylvania and fought in the Revolutionary War. He fought in the Battle of Long Island and other battles, so the connection to this war for me is a personal one. Because of his and others' courage, bravery, and sacrifice, his decision to pick up a musket and fight for freedom allows me to be a proud member of the Sons of the American Revolution. My father served in the Navy, as did I, and believe 100% in this country and the United States Constitution. No matter how crazy our elected leaders are and how it seems that oftentimes our country is spiraling out of control. It's important to understand how our country came to be and know the truth, the real and actual factual truth and the history behind it. The American Revolution is my passion described by my family and friends more appropriately as my addiction, and I can't disagree. For each show, I spend countless hours researching, reading diaries and journals from people of the era, scouring documents from countless sources, calling and searching city, state, and federal archives, digging deep to uncover those things that many have never even heard about. Of course, this also includes the many historic places that I've been to personally. Then, it's all put together in some semblance of order, recorded, and published, making it available worldwide. Through my words, descriptions, and show notes, my goal is to have you be there, feel what they felt, literally have an understanding of what was going on with the topic that I'm talking about. And as I tell my students, it's not about memorizing dates and timelines, but rather understanding the journey and story of how our country came to be and those involved in the process, both known and the many that nobody has ever heard of. If you don't hear the excitement and passion in my voice, if you can't put yourself in the situation that I'm talking about, if you don't have a good visualization in your mind that means that I haven't done my job very well and that I've missed my goal with this podcast. I'm sure that I'll fall short from time to time, and to fill in those gaps, I have show notes for every single episode. 
These show notes include links, videos, photos, paintings, maps, and a large variety of additional resources and educational information for you to explore. I've had several listeners tell me that they like to actually go through the show notes first and then listen to the episode. I'm confident you know what method works best for you. I'm just glad that you're here. This is the show's 20th episode and the first one of the new year, 2023. So again, thank you for tuning in. Almost every significant political figure of the American Revolution attended either the first or second Continental Congress, which is the topic of today's show. Well, I'll only be talking about the first Continental Congress, that is. With that being said, one would assume that maybe these Congresses would be discussed more than they are, but hey, that's why I chose that to be the topic today. It's a meeting rather than a battle and perhaps doesn't get the press or discussion that it should, but in reality, it really was a very important event in history, which you will hear why shortly. My last non-bonus episode covered the Boston Tea Act, the Port Act, and, of course, the Boston Tea Party, and the Intolerable Acts, which the First Continental Congress addresses. This brought us to about June 1774, and a couple months later, the First Continental Congress convened. Just a friendly reminder that non-bonus episodes follow a timeline trajectory of the Revolution while bonus episodes focus more on a person, battle, or event, and could be at any point during the Revolution. Determined to stand their ground, the colonies decide to coordinate their resistance, working together to defy British rule. I have listened to many history-type podcasts, videos on YouTube regarding the First Continental Congress and the American Revolution in general, And to be blatantly honest and blunt, I didn't find them very exciting. And honestly, they were quite boring. It it seems like they just are reading something that they found online and and it's dry. I say this not to be mean or judgmental. It's just my opinion. And I hope that when you listen to this podcast, you don't feel that way. But if you do, email me and tell me. I want to know. I'm a big boy, and if you have input and suggestions on how to make this better, more interesting and engaging, I am all ears. And I do sincerely mean that. George Washington listened far more than he spoke, and he was an expert at making things better or work out. Why? Because he took input from everyone, and he always listened and took the advice from those around him. So if you have suggestions, let me know. I'm really eager to hear them. The American Revolution and learning about it should not be boring. Studying it, whether it's podcasts or books, documentaries, primary sources, visiting actual historical locations, or all of the above, it helps paint a better picture of what it was all about, who was involved, and how our country came to be. There are so many amazing things about the Revolution, and if I were to just list them out individually, we would be here all night. So obviously I won't do that. However, as I've said in previous shows, I'll start studying one event or person or battle, and that leads me down one, two, 
or maybe even a dozen rabbit holes. It seems like it's a never-ending discussion, and for that, I am grateful, as I plan on covering as much as humanly possible until I just physically cannot. The timeline of the revolution is fascinating enough and has plenty of material for a novice historian like me to, well, keep me busy for years, but the side stories and the items of interest that don't get a lot of press, the people or events that you may have not ever heard about, and more, is why I do the bonus episodes. My goal for today's show is a big one, and I may just fall flat on my face, but my goal, especially for a topic that in short is about men meeting for six weeks, could easily be considered mundane and boring. Perhaps that is why, when I listen or read about this topic by others, it's just facts, dates, names. I want you to know so much more about the First Continental Congress, for one, you should know about it, but also it is a really amazing thing that took place, and I'm going to try to accomplish this task, making a meeting of men an exciting one. Coupled with the videos, links, personal photos, and show notes that I do provide, I hope that I don't let you down. So with that, let's get started and find out all about the First Continental Congress. Picture yourself walking in downtown Philadelphia, perhaps dining, stopping at a coffee shop, or maybe even shopping. I'd like to tell you exactly what the weather was, but I could not find weather records that far back. But with what is available, picture in your mind as you walk down the streets of Philadelphia, it's about 49 degrees. From your vantage point, you notice men arriving by horse, some in a carriage, and a lot more than usual were arriving. And compared to others, they seem more important to you for some reason. The date is September 5th, 1774. Later, you would find out that those you saw arriving were in fact 56 delegates from 12 colonies. You would later read that the reason they were there was for what would later be called the First Continental Congress. Now, you may notice I said 12 colonies instead of the 13 that existed, but Georgia opted out. I'll explain why near the end of the show under the Lesser Known and Interesting Facts section. 44 of the 56 delegates arrived early, and due to that, they had to decide where they would all meet. So the first day at least the ones that were present, they all met at a place called City Tavern. This was a location that was very popular and where lots of important meetings and people met. Footnote. My wife and I had an amazing dinner at City Tavern where the chef created a masterpiece. And the coolest thing is, is that the food is the same type that would have been served when many of the founding fathers would have eaten there. In fact, it was one of the Founding Fathers' most favorite places to visit and hold meetings in Philadelphia. City Tavern was one of, if not the, most visited taverns in the entire city of Philly and was ranked in the top 10 places to visit. Imagine sipping a cold, dark ale at the bar or enjoying a dinner like my wife and I did with the knowledge that you were doing what everyone who attended the First Continental Congress did. 
Sadly, due to the intentional economic struggles created by the plandemic, City Tavern was officially closed in 2021. This was a giant loss to the city, the tourists, and history as a whole. This should never have happened, and it didn't need to happen. COVID and all of the insanity and pure craziness it created resulted in the closing of several historical places, including City Tavern. End footnote. City Tavern was a little too informal for holding a Congress, so they decided using the State House. The State House, which is only a couple blocks away from Carpenter's Hall, is the same building that we now call Independence Hall. That option was also a no, since it was known to be filled with a lot of loyalists and spies. So they finally decided on a smaller, newly built building, one that had two levels, a little more private, and it would work best and ideal for all their needs. That building was Carpenter's Hall. Carpenter's Hall would be forever known as the location of the First Continental Congress. Those in attendance were the most well-known and exceedingly bright from all the colonies, gathered in a single place, a single building, which I've stood in personally. Carpenter's Hall has a pretty neat history, and I'll cover some of it near the end of the show. Also, in the show notes, I have a few photos that I took while at Carpenter's Hall, a video walkthrough of the building, and a few other links that I think you might enjoy. Carpenter's Hall, as is Independence Hall, Yorktown, and countless other historic locations, gave me a sense of awe, literally standing on the same floor where all of these amazing and brilliant men walked and stood, making decisions that would massively impact our future country. It's a very interesting and moving experience to visit a place where a significant historical event happened. It can give you a sense of connection to the past and help maybe describe and learn what really happened there. It brings it to life. There's a sense of reverence, and for me, it brings up a sense of pride, being at a place that played a role in the shaping and course of history. Our history. I've said this before, but being at a physical location of where history actually took place looking around 360 degrees, smelling the air, imagining, there's just nothing like it. And when you have the opportunity to visit a historic place that interests you, do it. It's a magical experience. Let's talk about who attended the First Continental Congress, and how did one get chosen to be a part of it? The men that attended were either elected by the people by the colonial legislatures, or by the committees of correspondence of the respective colonies. Two of the four delegates representing Massachusetts were Sam Adams and his second cousin, John Adams. Sam Adams was the leader and probably co-founder of the Sons of Liberty, and many considered him a radical. I think the word radical might be fairly accurate, but one thing is for certain, He would do anything and everything for liberty, fairness, and our independence. Today, I have heard him labeled as an internal terrorist or a mob rioter, but those are by people who have no clue, no historical background, and frankly have nothing better to do than try and destroy our country. 
Sam Adams was instrumental in countless ways in the forming of our country, who went about it a little bit, okay, a lot different than his cousin, John Adams. John Adams, as everybody knows, became eventually our second president, and in my opinion, which is supported by facts, has often been overlooked and slighted in countless ways for his contributions. Footnote. There is the Washington Monument, Jefferson Memorial, Mount Rushmore, and D.C. has many memorials throughout the city. Adams is not one of them. He is not on our currency, bill or coin, not even a postage stamp. John Adams himself was partially correct when he said in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, well after both of their presidencies in 1815, he wrote him and said, quote, The essence of the whole will be that Dr. Franklin's electric rod smote the earth and outsprang General Washington. Then Franklin electrified him, and thenceforward those two conducted all the policy, negotiations, legislations, and war. End quote. A few years later, Adams wrote, quote, Mausoleums, statues, and monuments will never be erected to me. I wish them not. Panegyrical romances will never be written, nor flattering orations pronounced to transmit my character to posterity in glorious colors. End quote. It is unusual that a memorial hasn't been erected yet, especially since Congress already approved it way back in 2001. I suppose it's easier to forget about a president who had the unfortunate luck, if you want to call it that, of following George Washington. Like, seriously, no matter who followed George Washington as a second president could have ever looked good. They would be, and Adams was, compared to Washington. Then, Adams' presidency was right before Thomas Jefferson, so he was bookended by Washington and Jefferson. Well, it's quite unfortunate because Adams' contributions are endless. However, since this isn't the topic of the show, but it is worth investigating further, I have provided several links to articles about him being forgotten in history and also the status of raising an Adams monument or memorial, which are located in the show notes. One of those articles by CBS is called Forgotten Patriot, and that is a must-read. End footnote. Should I go off on a little tangent or rabbit trail, which, if you've listened to my shows before, that might happen from time to time, I'll use footnote and end footnote to mark these audibly for you. These footnotes are just additional information about something that may not flow with the topic, but is somehow related, and they fall under the footnote category. Okay, so we have Sam and John Adams from Massachusetts. Let's next talk about New York. New York was represented by John Jay, who would become the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and also helped complete and sign the Treaty of Paris, the document that officially ended the American Revolution. Virginia, the most populous colony, had a all-star cast of representatives that included George Washington, Patrick Henry, Benjamin Harrison, now, Harrison's great-grandson would become our 23rd president. Richard Henry Lee also attended, whose brother, Francis Lightfoot Lee, signed the Articles of Confederation and 
the Declaration of Independence. Peyton Randolph also was there, whose cousin was none other than Thomas Jefferson. Patrick Henry would become famous for his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, and George Washington, well, there isn't enough time to go into what he did for our country. 224 years after Washington's death, books are still being written about him. Footnote. There are approximately 900 books that fall under the title of bibliography regarding George Washington. 900! When you add articles and high-level scholarly typewritings where his name appears in the title, well, that takes it to over 6,000. Didn't I tell you that Virginia was an all-star cast or what? To be fair, all the delegates from every state were vitally important. End footnote. Pennsylvania's delegation had seven people, and one of which was John Dickinson, author of the Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania, whom you met already when I discussed him and his letters in great detail in bonus episode number 11. South Carolina's delegation included John Rutledge, who would become second Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and also attended the Stamp Act Congress. Rutledge had a very distinguished life in the forming of our country. Footnote. Rutledge, on December 26, 1795, attempted suicide by jumping from a cliff into the Charleston Harbor. He survived as two slaves saw him drowning and they rescued him. After that, he withdrew from the public and died five years later at the age of 60. Talk about having extremes in one person's life, eh? End footnote. It was an esteemed collection for sure of the who's who, and they all understood the reason and magnitude of why they were there. Footnote. It's important to realize that although many of the delegates were amazing men, and at the time fighting for equality, several of them, once the war started, defected and became loyalists. End footnote. The First Continental Congress was indeed a collection of future legends that had never been assembled in one place or seen in the colonies before. So, why were they there in the first place? As you will learn, they accomplished a great amount of work outside of the main reason. The main reason was how to respond and deal with the intolerable acts, sometimes called the coercive acts. A top five list of reasons for them gathering, I think, would be number one, to unite the colonies in their opposition of the coercive acts, which were seen as a direct violation of colonial rights. Number two, to discuss and coordinate a colonial response to the coercive acts, which had led to the closure of the port of Boston and the deployment of the troops to occupy the city. Number three, to petition King George III and the British government or parliament for a redress of grievances, including the repeal of the coercive acts. Number four, to establish a mutual defense pact among the colonies in case of military action by the British. And lastly, number five, to establish a boycott of British goods in protest of the coercive acts and other oppressive measures taken by the British government against the colonies. They felt if the separate colonies could come together as one, 
showing a combined authority to England that it would make more of a noise that would get England's ear and attention. Their goal was not independence at this point, and nor was going to war. This was a peaceful attempt to come together, have one voice echoing the sentiments of 13 separate colonies, and have the opportunity to let King George III know about it. They wanted fairness and equality, and they felt that this method may be their best shot. Peyton Randolph from Virginia was elected to serve as the president of the Congress. Then they all agreed that each colony would get one vote to cast, regardless of how big or small the colony was. Since the colonies had several people representing it, for instance, Virginia had seven people, Massachusetts had four, and so on, a majority within each colony would determine how that colony's one vote would go. As I was naming off some who attended, certainly was not a complete list, but I do have a list of every single person, all the delegates that attended the First Continental Congress, broken down by state, and you'll find that in the show notes. They met, voiced concerns, had civil discussions, heated discussions, but in the end, unlike today, they came to agreements and actually accomplished what they had set out to do. Our current bodies of government should maybe reread history and learn how they did things and, in my opinion, try to mimic it. An interesting note of interest is that when they all were in the middle of negotiations, a messenger brought news that six people had just been killed in Boston. The only problem with this news is, well, it wasn't true, and likely just a rumor based on a powder house raid. They couldn't call send a text or find out on social media all of the details so to find out what really happened would take several days. So it's quite possible that during all of their negotiations and conversations the delegates may have voted and resolved things under the guise that we were already at war with England. Footnote. I have browsed the 340 plus page book, which I'll talk about later, to see what notes they had made about this messenger. I could not find it. Therefore, I can't say 100% that it did take place, but likely it did. I have not read every single page, but if it happened, it's likely noted. Should I find an actual record of it, and yes, I will keep looking, I'll update the show notes for this episode, but I wanted you to know what I found or didn't find. End footnote. After receiving the false news from the messenger, they opened up the day with prayer. Yes, they started with prayer. And unlike many people, including historians, many founding fathers believed in God and prayed often. This includes George Washington. If you like my podcast and what I'm doing, and you want to support it, I have a few ways that you can do that. Word of mouth is certainly the best way to advertise, so please tell your friends and family about this podcast. It's kid-friendly, too, so you can share it with teachers and schools if you want to. Podcasts that have a lot of reviews are just found easier. So if you have a few seconds, and literally that's all it takes, go to the bottom of my podcast, click the number of stars that you feel it is warranted, and that's it. You can write something if you want, but that's not necessary. It literally takes you just a few seconds. 
Lastly, we have some pretty cool patriotic gear on our newly launched online store. We have mugs, t-shirts with famous and important revolutionary quotes. Thanks for your consideration. And now let's get back to the podcast. Footnote. I wrote an article some time ago about the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and you can find it on our website, patriotpowerpodcast.com, where I looked and analyzed every single signer and what they did before the revolution, before they signed the Declaration, what their religious beliefs, if they had any. And I think if you read that article, you're going to realize real quick that the vast majority believed in God. End footnote. So after the opening prayer, they got down to work. The first item of discussion was the Galloway plan. Joseph Galloway came up with an idea for the creation of an American body to act in concert with the existing British body. Galloway's plan of union of Great Britain and the colonies began on a highly conciliatory note. Resolved that this Congress will apply to His Majesty for a redress of grievances under which his faithful subjects in America labor, and assure him that the colonies hold in abhorrence the idea of being considered independent communities on the British government, and most ardently desire the establishment of a political union not only among themselves, but with the mother state, upon chose principles of safety and freedom, which are essential in the constitution of all free governments, and particularly that of the British legislature. End quote. Before the Galloway proposal could be voted on or decided, another horse ride was in the works. Who would carry out this ride? That's right, Paul Revere. Revere rode into and all around Philadelphia to spread the news about the Suffolk Resolves. That's S-U-F-F-O-L-K. A large part of the reason that the resulting discussion further polarized the Congress was that Revere spread that news. The radical elements of the Suffolk Resolves eventually gained the upper hand with a majority of the colonies voting to support and endorse it rather than Galloway's plan. Footnote. When you hear Paul Revere, what comes to mind? I'm guessing the answer is the famous Midnight Ride. But the ride he did during the First Continental Congress regarding the Suffolk Resolves was very important. The Sons of Liberty provided a copy of the Boston Port Act and a circular for him to ride and spread the news, which was his first major ride. We covered the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Port Act in a recent episode, show number 18. Then, Revere rode to Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania telling everyone about the ports of Boston being closed. Let me remind you that all of this was done by horseback. This news raised the alarm and helped plant a seed for something to be done, which resulted in the First Continental Congress. I'm not saying because of this ride that everybody got together and said, hey, let's get the most famous and influential people from all the colonies together. But I am saying that it helped a lot more than people give it credit for. Paul Revere had some 18 
similar rides, all of which was providing important news and updates to the general public in the colonies. Think of him like a social media post, spreading the news in real life, except with him, it took a lot more work, and what he relayed was usually true, unlike most of social media. In fact, scratch that. Comparing Paul Revere to any social media is a disservice to Paul Revere. But you get my point on what these rides did and what they meant for the cause. End footnote. What were some of the items in the Suffolk Resolves that polarized the Congress? When you read them today, you might think, well, duh, this is how it should be. That totally makes sense. But put yourself in their position. In 1774, under England's dominion, these were strikingly bold and daring statements. The resolves proclaimed the coercive acts to be unconstitutional and void, and officials charged with the enforcement of these illegal acts were called upon to resign. The resolves urged Massachusetts to establish a separate free state until the coercive acts were repealed. They suggested that future tax collections be retained by the new Massachusetts government and not passed along to British officials. They called for the creation and enforcement of a boycott of British goods and trade with Britain. They advised the people of Massachusetts to appoint militia officers and commence arming their local forces. The resolves also warned General Thomas Gage that efforts to arrest citizens on political charges would in fact result in the detention of the arresting officer. And lastly, it also announced that subjects no longer owe loyalty to a king who violates their rights. When you read that, of course, it's, that's how it should be. These statements were pretty crazy if you think about it. You're basically telling the leader, the mother country, the leader of the mother country, that any taxes collected, we're not going to give you. We're going to arm ourselves. If you try to arrest citizens, we're going to detain those arresting officers. And by the way, we don't owe any loyalty to a king or country that violates their rights. This is a big deal. And this is just a partial list, but these are the main ones that I felt really stood out. And it's quite compelling. So you can see the feeling, the overall feeling of these delegates. Yes, they wanted peace. They've already put up with a lot of stuff, as you've learned in listening to my previous shows. This is, this is bold, very bold. The Congress then adopted the Continental Association, which is usually just called and referred to by simply the association, which established a total boycott by means of non-importation, non-exportation, and non-consumption accords from Great Britain. So what they're saying is, we're not going to buy anything from England, we're not going to sell anything to you guys, nor are we going to eat, drink, or use anything if it came from England. This was, in my opinion, a crucial and very important agreement that came out of this Congress. These agreements were to be enforced by a group of committees in each community, which would publish the names of merchants defying the boycott. They would confiscate any contraband and encourage 
public frugality. So in other words, if you didn't agree with this and you still wanted to buy and sell to England, you're going to get called out on it. And when I say get called out on it, it's not a minor thing. Uh, they would take you out into the street. They would make you well known to everybody. And probably if you did not start adhering to the non-importation exportation suggestions, you'd probably go out of business because people were not going to support you. Now, even as big and bold as this was, it's still, the association still was a peaceful attempt and way to settle the disputes and grievances with Great Britain. The association was suggested by Richard Henry Lee, but it was based on the 1769 Virginia Association that was initiated by none other than George Washington. And George Mason actually wrote that uh, 1769 Virginia Association. So 53 of the 56 delegates signed the association. I have a copy of the original document in the show notes, which is in PDF format. You can zoom in on their signatures and they use brackets with like Virginia or other states. And they all signed their names together in groupings by state. For some reason, it's just cool seeing their signatures, especially a group of them by state. Well, it is at least for me. Then came the Declaration of Rights and Grievances. The First Continental Congress created a statement of colonial complaints. It was addressed to King George, claiming that the delegates remained loyal to the king, but wanted certain fair and just rights acknowledged. Among them, they contended, the colonists, had certain rights which included life, liberty, and property, and they have never ceded to any sovereign power whatever a right to dispose of, either without their consent. The Declaration of Rights and Grievances starts out like this. Quote, Whereas since the close of the last war, the French and Indian War, the British Parliament claiming a power of right to bind the people of America by statute in all cases whatsoever hath in some acts expressly imposed taxes on them and in others under various pretenses, but in fact for the purpose of raising a revenue hath imposed rates and duties payable in these colonies established a board of commissioners with unconstitutional powers and extended the jurisdiction of courts of admiralty, not only for collecting the said duties, but for the trial of causes merely arising within the body of a county. End quote. They did not like to use periods when they... <laughs> some, some of these quotes just seem like they're 14 pages long, but... For many historians, it's not an easy task choosing what would be considered the most important parts of this declaration. For me, I believe the key issues were, one, the colonies have the same rights as Englishmen, including the right to be taxed only with the consent of their representatives. Did the colonies have any representation in the British government or parliament? No. That was the whole taxation, no taxation without representation, right? Number two, the Coercive Acts, also known as the Intolerable Acts, passed by the British government are unconstitutional and will be repealed. Number three, the colonies have the right to trade with any country and should not be restricted to trade only with Great Britain. Yes, Great Britain 
was trying to force the colonies, who they can do trade with, who they can't. They were involved in every little aspect of the colonists' lives. Number four, the colonies should not be subjected to any taxes except those agreed upon by their own representatives. Number five, the colonists have the right to a trial by jury and due process of law. Number six, the Quartering Act, which required the colonists to provide housing and supplies for British soldiers, is an unjust burden on the colonists. The Quartering Act I covered in great detail way back in episode number 10. And lastly, number seven, the colonies have the right to petition the king for a redress of grievances and to have their petitions considered fairly. One of the last items that they did complete, in fact, it was the day before they adjourned, was what would be referred to as the petition. On October 25th, 1774, the First Continental Congress sent this petition to King George III. It was pretty similar to the Declaration of Rights and Grievances, but it was a bit softer in the tone, starting off with loyalty to the king, praising England, making compliments of the mother country, etc., pretty much playing very nice and being overly kind to England and to the king. The next day, on October 26th, the Congress picked their next meeting to be held, which was going to be in May of 1775. The Congress agreed to convene again if colonial complaints had not been properly addressed. Can you guess if they were properly addressed or not? That meeting, called the Second Continental Congress, was indeed going to happen due to British actions, and we'll learn all about that on a future show. After the Declaration of Rights and Grievances and the petition made the long trip by ship to England, and then it was presented to the king, it was received with, let's say, real little enthusiasm. In fact, they just put it with all of their other business of the day, and it never seemed to get moved to the top of the stack, so to speak. So to them, it was just another issue that they had to discuss. However, once they started reading it, things changed. And Parliament stated that this was an immediate and direct challenge to British authority and considered it a starting point for further resistance to a colony or, worse yet, resistance by all of the colonies as a whole. In response to the Declaration of Rights and Grievances and the other outcomes from the First Continental Congress, the British government issued a proclamation which they were very good at, right? They were great at giving acts and taxes and proclamations. But here's another one. They issued a proclamation in 1775 declaring the colonies to be in a state of rebellion. Why is that important? Because if they labeled the colonies as rebellion or in a state of rebellion, it authorized the use of military force against the colonists. The boiling point had been reached, and it's all about to become very serious, dead serious, in a dramatic and historic way. Not wanting to jump ahead, but I will tell you that in just six 
short months after this Congress concluded, the shot heard round the world in a little place called Lexington Green would be the first battle of the American Revolution and with it start the chain of events that changes everything for the colonies and eventually the world. Now going back to the First Continental Congress and everything that they covered and talked about, wouldn't it be unbelievable if there was a way to read all that happened during the meeting like and for the entire year of the First Continental Congress? And what if this book included like the highlights of events that went all the way up into 1788, like a breakdown of each day and who said what and what decisions were made and who was assigned to what committees and a little short blurb about the details? Guess what? This journal does in fact exist. It's an amazing collection of everything that took place within the First Continental Congress from September 5th through December 30th, 1774. It has details and is a treasure, and it's all available to you. I would recommend reading it, but it's over 300 pages, so if nothing else, peruse through it. Some pages are pretty darn fascinating. You'll find the link to this in the show notes, and you can download it in PDF, EPUB and a variety of other formats. For example, on page 87, there's an entry from John Robbins that I found. Robbins provided a sworn statement about what he saw, that he was shot and wounded, and all the details from his personal perspective at the Battle of Lexington. Another item I've put in the show notes is a famous letter, although it's 29 pages long, and it's called Letter from a Virginian. Many claim that John Adams actually was the author. Some say it was James Madison who wrote it, but nobody really truly knows for sure. If John Adams did write it and wanted to conceal that fact, it makes sense since the title and where Adams lived were totally different. The link to view this book is also in the show notes, also with the ability to view or download it in several formats. So, as you have learned, the First Continental Congress was the first time the colony's leaders gathered in one place in an effort to show solidarity and get their voices of the opposition heard. Through this Congress, you've learned that many other items, resolves, and decisions were made. You learned who attended, a little bit about a few of them, where and when they attended, learned about the many issues that were addressed, discussed, and decided upon. Although no evidence, on paper at least, exists that this meeting was held to discuss independence, it was quite possibly on their minds, and it was certainly the first step in what would become the goal, independence from England. You also learned that decisions, some very important, were accomplished and agreed upon in just six weeks. Quite different from today. Now, our current Congress takes months and months to even vote on a bill, and many are so large they can't be read in their entirety, let alone understood, before it's time to vote on. It is ridiculous, sad, and probably by design. Now, this is a large can of worms that I'm not going to open, but I will say this. When you have intelligent men gathering for a cause, focused on equality for all and making decisions that benefit we the people, 
It's a beautiful process, how it was crafted to work in the first place, and how it should be today. Unfortunately now, most elected officials spend the bulk of their time focused on re-elections, how they can fill their own personal coffers, and what deals and promises they need to keep in order to remain in office and increase their bank account ledgers. This goes for both Republicans and Democrats, in my opinion. Keep in mind, everyone at the First Continental Congress made this trip on their own dime. They didn't take a salary, or the colonies that did compensate the delegates. It was so small, it's not really even worth mentioning. And traveling from South Carolina to Philadelphia, for example, was over 600 miles. It wasn't an easy or quick trip, and nor was it inexpensive. But yet they did this on horseback, finding lodging along the way, and they paid for it themselves. That alone should tell you something about the integrity and what the intentions were of these delegates that assembled. Can you imagine today if we had people like that in office, genuinely, sincerely concerned and worried about the common welfare of the public, willing to go above and beyond on their own dime to help those that they represent? The landscape of our country would change instantly. They met and made decisions because they felt what England had done and continued to do was wrong. They knew something had to be done and they did not pass the buck or let someone else deal with it. The First Continental Congress is important to the history of the United States because it was the first unified governing body with the authority to act on behalf of the colonies. The men that attended were leaders, brave, courageous men who risked much to even attend this meeting. They were real men, nothing like we have today, not even close. We've now reached the part of my show called Lesser Known Fun and Interesting Facts, so here we go. Carpenter's Hall is a two-story building with a large meeting room on the first floor and a smaller meeting room on the second floor. The first floor meeting room was used for events and meetings by the Carpenter's Company and other organizations, while the second floor meeting room was used for more intimate gatherings and as a library. Which, by the way, Benjamin Franklin donated books to that library. During the First Continental Congress, the second floor meeting room was used as the committee room where the smaller groups could meet to discuss specific issues related to the Congress. After the Congress ended, the second floor meeting room was then used for a variety of purposes, including a courtroom and a hospital during the American Revolution. The builder of Carpenter's Hall, his name was Robert Smith, he was a locally known master builder and architect of the time. Benjamin Franklin called upon Smith to build his home in Philadelphia. Why didn't Georgia send representatives to the First Continental Congress? In short, they were busy fighting Native Americans on their border and within their state, or should I say colony, and in order to protect themselves, they relied heavily on supplies and munitions, both of which came from England. 
they didn't really want to ruffle any feathers, risking being cut off, so they opted out. A couple of notables that did not participate in the First Congress? Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin. There were a lot of good quotes that came out of the Congress, but this one for me is hands down my favorite. Quote, the distinctions between Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Yorkers, and New Englanders are no more. I am not a Virginian, but an American. This was said by a man who never seemed to run out of quotes that would last centuries, and that person was Patrick Henry. What did George Washington do after the Congress had ended? He went shopping. Yes, shopping. He didn't buy a new wig. He actually did not wear a wig, but he did powder his own hair on occasion. And he didn't buy fine china or even trinkets for Mount Vernon, but rather he bought muskets and military apparel. He also placed an order for a book on military discipline. It was obvious to him and many other delegates that although they hoped for a peaceful solution, a conflict which would include military action was on the brink. A few interesting facts about Peyton Randolph, who again was chosen as the first president of the First Continental Congress. About a year after the Congress ended, Randolph went to dinner with Thomas Jefferson. First of all, can you imagine like getting dressed and going to dinner with somebody like Thomas Jefferson? Perhaps it's just me, but trying to imagine that is crazy. Like, hey, honey, I'm going to be back later. I'm going to go have a drink with uh, George Washington. And then I have a dinner date with Thomas Jefferson. If I could only go back in time. At any rate, while he was at dinner with Jefferson on October 22nd, 1775, he suffered a stroke that he endured for five hours and then died. The Continental Congress honored Randolph by naming one of the first naval frigates the USS Randolph. During World War II, an early Essex-class aircraft carrier was named after him, that being the USS Randolph. If you're interested, I have a plethora of links, videos, and more on the show notes. I think I have like 15. And if you watch the videos, visit some of those links, and then couple that with this podcast, my hope is that you not only learned a lot, but you can say it was in a fun, energetic, and non-boring way. Thanks for listening and hope that you tune in next time with us here at the Patriot Power Podcast. Make sure that you hit subscribe so you'll get notified when our new episodes are available for you. And we hope that you check out our websites, which include our show notes, links, documents, and more at PatriotPowerPodcast.com or ILoveGeorgeWashington.com. Until next time, hope that you and your family have a blessed week. And remember, be safe and tell a veteran thanks for their service.